Chapter 19 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 1, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 19, Theobald's Palace. The magnificent palace of Theobald's, situated near Chesunt in Hertfordshire, originally the residence of the great Lord Treasurer Burley, and the scene of his frequent and sumptuous entertainments to Queen Elizabeth and the ambassadors to her court, when she was seen, says Stowe, in as great royalty and served as bountifully and magnificently as at any other time or place, all at his lordship's charge, with rich shows, pleasant devices, and all manner of sports, to the great delight of her majesty and her whole train, with great thanks from all who partook of it, and as great commendations from all that heard of it abroad. This famous and delightful palace, with its stately gardens, wherein Elizabeth had so often walked and held converse with her faithful counsellor, and its noble parks and chases, well stocked with deer, wherein she had so often hunted, came into possession of James I, in the manner we shall proceed to relate, some years before the date of this history. James first made acquaintance with Theobalds during his progress from Scotland to assume the English crown, and it was the last point at which he halted before entering the capital of his new dominions. Here, for four days, he and his crowd of noble attendants were guests of Sir Robert Cecil, afterwards Earl of Salisbury, who proved himself the worthy son of his illustrious and hospitable sire by entertaining the monarch and his numerous train in the same princely style that the Lord Treasurer had ever displayed towards Queen Elizabeth. An eyewitness has described the king's arrival at Theobald's on this occasion. Thus then, says John Seville, for his majesty's coming up the walk, there came before him some of the nobility, barons, knights, esquires, gentlemen, and others, amongst whom was the sheriff of Essex, and most of his men, the trumpet sounding next before his highness, sometimes one, sometimes another, his majesty riding not continually betwixt the same two, but sometimes one, sometimes another, as seemed best to his highness, the whole nobility of our land and Scotland round about him observing no place of superiority, all bareheaded, all of whom alighted from their horses at their entrance into the first court, save only his majesty alone, who rid along still, four noblemen laying their hands upon his steed, two before and two behind. In this manner he came to the court door, where I myself stood. At the entrance into that court stood many noblemen, amongst whom was Sir Robert Cecil, who there meeting his majesty conducted him into his house, all which was practised with as great applause of the people as could be, hearty prayer, and throwing up of hats. His majesty had not stayed above an hour in his chamber, but hearing the multitude throng so fast into the uppermost court to see his highness, he showed himself openly out of his chamber window by the space of half an hour together, after which time he went into the labyrinth-like garden to walk, where he secreted himself in the meander's compact of bays, rosemary, and the like overshadowing his walk, to defend him from the heat of the sun till supper-time, at which was such plenty of provision for all sorts of men in their due places as struck me with admiration. And first, to begin with the ragged regiments, and such as were debarred the privilege of any court, these were so sufficiently rewarded with beef, veal, mutton, bread, and beer, that they sung holiday every day, and kept a continual feast. As for poor maimed and distressed soldiers, which repaired thither for maintenance, the wine, money, and meat, which they had in very bounteous sort, 
hath become a sufficient spur to them to blaze it abroad since their coming to London. The reader will marvel at the extraordinary and unstinting hospitality practiced in those days, which, as we have shown, was exhibited to all comers, irrespective of rank, even to the ragged regiments, and which extended its bounties in the shape of alms to the wounded and disabled veteran, we find no parallel to it in modern times. Theobald's produced a highly favorable impression upon James, who, passionately attached to the chase, saw in its well-stocked parks the means of gratifying his tastes to the fullest extent. Its contiguity to Enfield Chase was also a great recommendation, and its situation, beautiful in itself, was retired, and yet within easy distance of the metropolis. It appeared to him to combine all the advantages of a royal hunting-seat with all the splendors of a palace, and his predilections were confirmed by a second visit paid by him to it in 1606, when he was accompanied by his brother-in-law, Christianus, King of Denmark, and when the two monarchs were gloriously entertained by the Earl of Salisbury. The Danish king drank inordinately, so did the whole of his suite, and they soon inoculated the English court with their sottish tastes. Bonnie King Jamie himself got foe twice a day, and melancholy to relate, the ladies of the court followed the royal example, and, abandoning their sobriety, were seen to roll about in intoxication. So says Sir John Harrington, who has given a very diverting account of the orgies at Theobald's and the inebriate extravagances of Christianus. One day, writes Sir John, a great feast was held, and after dinner the representation of Solomon's temple and the coming of the Queen of Sheba was made, or, as I may better say, was meant to have been made before their majesties, by device of the Earl of Salisbury and others. But alas, as all earthly things do fail to poor mortals in enjoyment, so did prove our presentment thereof. The lady that did play the queen's part did carry most precious gifts to both their majesties, but forgetting the steps arising to the canopy, overset her casket into his Danish majesty's lap and fell at his feet, though I rather think it was into his face. Much was the hurry and confusion. Cloths and napkins were at hand to make all clean. His majesty then got up and would dance with the queen of Sheba, but he fell down and humbled himself before her, and was carried to an inner chamber, and laid on a bed of state. The entertainment and show went forward, and most of the presenters went backward or fell down. Wine did so occupy their upper chambers. Worthy Sir John seems to have been greatly scandalized, as well he might be, at these shameless proceedings, and he exclaims pathetically, The Danes have again conquered the Britons, for I see no man, or woman either, that can command himself or herself. Nor does he fail to contrast these strange pageantries with what occurred of the same sort in the same place in Queen Elizabeth's time, observing, I never did see such lack of good order, discretion, and sobriety as I have now done. Having set his heart upon Theobald's, James offered the Earl of Salisbury, in exchange for it, the palace and domains of Hatfield, and the proposal being accepted, it could not very well be refused. The delivery of the much-coveted place was made on the 22nd May, 1607. The Prince Joinville, brother to the Duc de Guise, being present on the occasion, where fresh festivities were held, accompanied by an indifferent mask from Ben Johnson, whether the King or the Earl had the best of the bargain, we are not prepared to decide. Enchanted with his acquisition, James commenced the work of improvement and embellishment by enlarging the park, appropriating a good slice of Enfield Chase, with parts of Northaw and Chesant Commons, and surrounding the whole with a high brick wall ten miles in circumference.
Within this ring he found ample scope for the indulgence of his hunting propensities, since it contained an almost inexhaustible stock of the finest deer in the kingdom, and within it might be heard the sound of his merry horn and the bane of his favorite staghounds, whenever he could escape from the cares of state or the toils of the council chamber. His escapes from these demands upon his time were so frequent, and the attraction of the woods of Theobald so irresistible, that remonstrances were made to him on the subject, but they proved entirely ineffectual. He declared he would rather return to Scotland than forego his amusements. Theobald's, in the time of its grandeur, might be styled the Fontainebleau of England. Though not to be compared with Windsor Castle in grandeur of situation, or magnificence of forest scenery, still it was a stately residence, and worthy of the monarch of a mighty country. Crowned with four square towers of considerable height and magnitude, each with a line and vein on the top, it had besides a large lantern-shaped central turret, proudly domineering over the others, and made with timber of excellent workmanship, curiously wrought with diverse pinnacles at each corner, wherein were hung twelve bells for chimage, and a clock with chimes of sundry work. The whole structure was built, says the survey, of excellent brick, with coins, jams, and cornices of stone. Approached from the south by a noble avenue of trees, planted in double rows, and a mile in length, it presented a striking and most picturesque appearance, with its lofty towers, its great gilded veins, supported, as we have said, by lions, its crowd of twisted chimneys, its leaded and arched walks, its balconies, and its immense bay windows. Nor did it lose its majestic and beautiful aspect as you advanced nearer, and its vast proportions became more fully developed. Then you perceived its grand, though irregular, facades, its enormous gates, its cloistered walks, and its superb gardens, and comprehended that with its five courts and the countless apartments they contained, to say nothing of the world of offices, that the huge edifice comprised a town within itself, and a well-peopled town, too. The members of the household, and the various retainers connected with it, were multitudinous as the rooms themselves. One charm and peculiarity of the palace, visible from without, consisted in the arched walks before referred to, placed high up on the building on every side. Screened from the weather, these walks looked upon the different courts and gardens, and commanded extensive views of the lovely sylvan scenery around. Hence Chessent and Waltham Abbey, Enfield and other surrounding villages, could be distinguished through the green vistas of the park. On the south, facing the Grand Avenue, was a large open cloister built upon several large fair pillars of stone, arched over with seven arches, and a fair rail and balusters, well painted with the kings and queens of England, and the pedigree of the old Lord Burley, and divers other ancient families. The body of the palace consisted of two large quadrangles, one of which, eighty-six feet square, was denominated the Fountain Court, from the circumference of a fountain of black and white marble standing within it. The other quadrangle, somewhat larger, being 110 feet square, was called the middle court. In addition to these, there were three other smaller courts, respectively entitled the Dial Court, the Buttery Court, and the Dove House Court, wherein the offices were situated. On the east side of the Fountain Court stood an arched cloister, and on the ground floor there was a spacious hall, paved with marble and embellished with a curiously carved ceiling, Adjoining it were the apartments assigned to the Earl of Salisbury as Keeper of Theobalds, the Council Chamber, and the chambers of Sir Louis Lucaner, Master of the Ceremonies, and Sir John Finnett. 
Above was the presence chamber, wainscoted with oak, painted in liver color and gilded, having rich pendants from the ceiling, and vast windows resplendent with armorial bearings. Near this were the privy chamber and the king's bedchamber, together with a wide gallery, 123 feet in length, wainscoted and roofed like the presence chamber, but yet more gorgeously fretted and painted. Its walls were ornamented with stag's heads, with branching antlers. On the upper floor were the rooms assigned to the Duke of Lennox, as Lord Chamberlain, and close to them was one of the external leaded walks before alluded to, sixty-two feet long and eleven wide, which, from its eminent position, carried the gaze to wear. In the middle court were the Queen's apartments, comprising her chapel, presence chamber, and other rooms, and over them a gallery nearly equal in length to that reserved for the King. In this quadrangle also were Prince Charles's lodgings. Over the latter was the Green Gallery, 109 feet in length, and proportionately wide. And above the gallery was another external covered walk, wherein were two lofty arches of brick of no small ornament to the house, and rendering it comely and pleasant to all that passed by. The gardens were enchanting, and in perfect keeping with the palace, occupying several acres. They seemed infinitely larger than they were, since they abounded in intricate alleys, labyrinths, and mazes, so that you were easily lost within them, and sometimes wanted a clue to come forth. They contained some fine canals, fountains, and statues. In addition to the great gardens were the priory gardens, with other enclosures for pheasants, aviaries, and menageries, for James was very fond of wild beasts, and had a collection of them worthy of a zoological garden. In one of his letters to Buckingham, when the latter was at Madrid, we find him inquiring about the elephant, camels, and wild asses. He had always a camel house at Theobald's. To close our description, we may add that the tennis court, manege stable kennels, and falconry were on a scale of magnitude proportionate to the palace. Beneath the wide-spreading branches of a noble elm, forming part of the great avenue, and standing at a short distance from the principal, entrance to the palace, were collected together, one pleasant afternoon in May, a small group of persons, consisting almost entirely of the reader's acquaintances. Chief amongst them was Jocelyn Munchensee, who, having dismounted and fastened his horse to the branch, was leaning against the large trunk of the tree, contemplating the magnificent structure we have attempted to describe. Unacquainted as yet with its internal splendors, he had no difficulty in comprehending them from what he beheld from without. The entrance gates were open, and a wide archway beyond, leading to the great quadrangle, gave him a view of its beautiful marble fountain in the midst, ornamented with exquisite statues of Venus and Cupid. Numerous officers of the household, pages, ushers, and serving men in the royal liveries, with now and then some personage of distinction, were continually passing across the fountain court. Gaily attired courtiers, in doublets of satin and mantles of velvet, were lounging in the balconies of the presence chamber, staring at Jocelyn and his companions for want of better occupation. Other young nobles, accompanied by richly habited dames, some of them the highest-born and loveliest in the land, were promenading to and fro upon the garden terrace on the right, chattering and laughing loudly. There was plenty of life and movement everywhere, even in the Lord Chamberlain's walk, which, as we have said, was contrived in the upper part of the structure and formed a sort of external gallery three persons might be discerned, and to save the reader any speculation, we will tell him that these persons were the Duke of Lennox, Lord Chamberlain, the Conde de Gondomar, the Spanish Leisure Ambassador, and the Lord Roos, 
In front of the great gates were stationed four warders, with the royal badge woven in gold on the front and back of their crimson doublets, with roses in their velvet hats, roses in their buskins, and halberts over their shoulders. Just within the gates stood a gigantic porter, a full head and shoulders taller than the burly warders themselves. From the summit of the lofty central tower of the palace floated the royal banner, discernible by all the country round. On the other side of the tree against which Jocelyn was leaning, and looking down the long avenue, rather than towards the palace, stood Dick Taverner, who, however, bestowed little attention upon his master, being fully occupied by a more attractive object close at hand. Dickon, it appeared, had succeeded in inducing Gillian Greenford to accompany him in the expedition to Theobald's, and as the fair damsel could not of course go alone, she had cajoled her good-natured old grandsire into conveying her thither, and she was now seated behind him upon a pillion placed on the back of a strong, rough-coated horse. Dick was in raptures at his success. The ride from Tottenham had been delightful. They had tarried for a short time to drink a cup of ale at the Bell at Edmonton, where Dick meant to have breakfasted, though chance had so agreeably prevented him, and where the liquor was highly approved by the old farmer, who became thenceforth exceedingly chatty, and talked of nothing else but good Queen Bess, and her frequent visits to Theobald's in the old Lord Burley's time, during the rest of the journey. Little heed was paid to his garrulity by the young people. They let him talk on, feigning to listen, but in reality, noting scarce a word he said. As they entered the park of Theobald's, however, they found their tongues, and Gillian became loud in her admiration of the beautiful glades that opened before them, and of the dappled denizens of the wood that tripped lightsomely across the sward, or hurried towards the thickets. The park, indeed, looked beautiful with its fine oaks and their freshly opened foliage of the tenderest green, its numerous spreading beeches, its scattered thorns white with blossom, and the young fern just springing from the seed in the brakes. No wonder Gillian was delighted. Dick was equally enchanted, and regretted he was not like King James, master of a great park, that he might hunt within it at his pleasure. Of course, if he had been king, Gillian would naturally have been his queen, and have hunted with him. Old Greenford, too, admired the scene, and could not but admit that the park was improved, though he uttered something like a groan as he thought that Queen Elizabeth and the Lord Treasurer could be seen in it no longer. After riding for a couple of miles along a road which led them over beautifully undulating ground, affording glimpses of every variety of forest scenery, sometimes plunging them into the depths of groves, where the path was covered by overarching trees, sometimes crossing the open chase, studded by single-aged oaks of the largest size, sometimes skirting the margin of a pool, fringed with flags, reeds, and bulrushes for the protection of the waterfowl, now passing the large heronry, to the strict preservation of which James attached the utmost importance. They at length approached the long avenue leading to the palace. At its entrance they found Jocelyn waiting for them. The young man, who cared not for their company, had ridden on in advance. The strange events of the morning gave him plenty of material for reflection, and he longed to commune with himself. Accordingly, when the others stopped at Edmonton, he quitted them, promising to halt till they came up before entering the precincts of the palace. If his ride was not so agreeable as theirs, it at least enabled him to regain, in some degree, his composure of mind, which had been greatly disturbed by his abrupt parting with Avalon. Her image was constantly before him, and refusing to be dismissed, connected itself with every object he beheld. At first he despaired of meeting her again, but as he gradually grew calmer, his hopes revived, and difficulties which seemed insuperable began to disperse. 
by the time Dick Taverner and his companions came up, he felt some disposition to talk, and Gillian's hearty merriment and high spirits helped to enliven him. Having ascertained from one of the royal keepers whom he had encountered, that the king, with a large company, was out hawking on the banks of the new river, which was cut through the park, and that he would in all probability return through the great avenue to the palace, he proposed that they should station themselves somewhere within it, in order to see him pass. This arrangement pleased all parties, so proceeding slowly up the avenue, they took up a position as described. More than an hour, however, elapsed, and still James, who no doubt was pleased with his sport, came not. Without being aware of their high quality, or having the slightest notion that the Conde Gondomar was one of them, Jocelyn had remarked the three personages in the Lord Chamberlain's walk. He had seen them pause, and apparently look towards the little group of which he himself formed part. Shortly after this, two of the party retired, leaving the third alone in the gallery. By and by, these two individuals were seen to cross the fountain court, and passing through the great gates to direct their steps towards the avenue. As they approached, Jocelyn recognized one of them as Lord Roos, whom he had seen play so singular a part at Madame Bonaventure's ordinary. The other was wholly unknown to him. But that he was a person of the utmost distinction he felt convinced, as well from his haughty bearing and sumptuous attire, as from the evident respect paid him by his companion. In stature he was rather short, being somewhat under the ordinary standard, but his figure was admirably proportioned, and was displayed to the greatest advantage by his rich habiliments. His doublet was of sea-green satin, embroidered with silver and black, with rich open sleeves, and his Spanish cloak was of velvet of the same color and similarly embroidered. His hose were of tawny silk, and the plumes in his bonnet black, striped with white. He was decorated with the Order of the Golden Fleece, and bore at his side a genuine blade of Toledo, with the handle of rarest workmanship. Bound his throat he wore a large triple ruff edged with pointed lace. His face was oval in shape, his complexion of a rich olive hue, his eyes large, dark, and keen, his features singularly handsome, and his looks penetrating. His hair was raven black, cut short, and removed from the forehead. Lord Bruce and his companion passed close to Jocelyn without appearing to notice him, but they halted before Gillian, regarding her with insolent admiration. Evidently she was the object that had brought them forth. The poor damsel was terribly confused by their ardent glances and libertine scrutiny, and blushed to her very temples. As to Dick Taverner, he trembled with rage and jealousy, and began to repent having brought his treasure into such a dangerous neighborhood. The person who seemed to be most struck with Gillian's charms was the wearer of the Spanish mantle. "'En verdad!' he exclaimed. "'That is the loveliest piece of rusticity I have seen since I came to England. I thought mine eyes did not deceive me as to her beauty when I caught sight of her from the Lord Chamberlain's gallery. "'The Conde de Gondomar hath ever an eagle's eye for a pretty woman,' Lord Roos replied, laughing. "'The Conde de Gondomar,' mentally ejaculated Jocelyn, who had overheard what he said. Why, this is he to whom the ring must be shown. The opportunity must not be lost. Accordingly, regardless of the impropriety of the proceeding, he uncovered his head, and advancing towards the Spaniard said, I believe I have the honor of addressing the Conde de Gondomar? What means this intrusion, sir? Lord Roos demanded insolently. What have you to say to his excellency? I bring him a token, my lord, the young man replied exhibiting the ring given him by the masked horseman to the ambassador. "'Ha!' exclaimed de Gondomar, glancing at the ring, and then regarding Jocelyn steadfastly. 
I must speak with this young man, my lord. And abandon the damsel? demanded Lord Roos. No, no, you must take care of her, de Gondomar replied in a low tone. Can you not induce Lady Exeter to take her into her service? I will try, Lord Roos replied. And see, he added, pointing down the avenue, the royal party is returning, so I can at once ascertain whether her ladyship will second your excellency's designs. Do so, said de Gondomar, and I shall be forever indebted to you. This girl has quite taken my fancy, and I must not lose her. And now, sir, he added, stepping aside with Jocelyn, you have brought me the token from my assured agent, and I understand from it that you are a person upon whom I may rely. In all that beseems a gentleman, and a man of honor, and loyalty, your excellency may rely on me, Jocelyn replied. I shall require nothing inconsistent with those principles, the Spanish ambassador said. This point disposed of, let me know how I can serve you, for I presume you have some request to prefer? Your Excellency can very materially serve me, Jocelyn replied. I am in danger. I thought as much, de Gondomar observed with a smile. Since you have placed yourself under my protection, I will do my best to hold you harmless. But who is your enemy? I have two deadly enemies, Sir Giles Mompasson and Sir Francis Mitchell, Jocelyn rejoined. I know them well. Instruments of Buckingham, said de Gondomar. They are indeed dangerous enemies. I have another yet more dangerous, returned Jocelyn. I have reason to fear that, by boldness of speech, I have incurred the enmity of the Marquis of Buckingham himself. Ah, this indeed is serious, said de Gondomar. I am threatened with arrest by the Star Chamber, pursued Jocelyn. So your Excellency will perceive that my position is fraught with extreme peril. Still, I persuade myself, if I could obtain a hearing of the king, I should be able to set my enemies at defiance and obtain my right. De Gondomar smiled somewhat scornfully. You will obtain little in that way, he said, and your enemies will crush you effectually. But you must explain to me precisely how you are circumstanced, and I will then consider what can be done for you, and begin by acquainting me with your name and condition, for as yet I am entirely ignorant whom I am addressing. Upon this, Jocelyn succinctly related to the ambassador all such particulars of his history as had been laid before the reader. De Gondomar listened to him with attention, and put some questions to him as he proceeded. At its close, his countenance brightened. "'You are in an awkward dilemma, it must be owned, Master Jocelyn Munchensee,' he said. "'But I think I can protect you in spite of them all, in spite of Buckingham himself. Luckily, he is not at Theobald's at present, so the coast is clear for action. The first blow is half the battle. I must present you to the king without delay. And see, his majesty approaches. Stand close behind me, and act as I advise you by a sign.' End of chapter 19